0: When Sweden and Finland submitted a joint application for membership of NATO following Russia's assault on Ukraine, it was a dramatic adjustment of strategic mindset for both. But nearly a year later, neither Sweden nor Finland have quite succeeded in joining. New members can only be admitted with the agreement of all existing members. Twenty-eight countries have ratified Sweden and Finland's applications to... Turkey and Hungary have not. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, not for the first time, is enjoying the leverage and spotlight available in such circumstances. Though Orban's party, Fidesz, has said Hungary will ratify, Hungary's parliament this week delayed their vote again until March 20th. But it is hard to imagine Orban pushing his luck beyond the next NATO summit in July. With Turkey, it is trickier. Turkey fields NATO's second-largest military, is the alliance's bulwark against the Middle East and the Caucasus and the gatekeeper of the Black Sea. And its president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, is at least as volatile and opportunistic as Viktor Orban. In this special episode set in NATO's waiting room, we speak to three Scandinavian foreign ministers and one former Scandinavian prime minister. Is this going to happen? If so, when? And what happens if Sweden and Finland can't join together? This is The Foreign Desk.
1: It is the largest shift in Swedish security policy for 200 years, and it ends a period of non-alignment. But it is also a token of how serious the situation is following the Russian illegal aggression on Ukraine and the full-scale invasion. It shows that smaller countries like Sweden, like Finland, like the Baltic states, who all have a very close neighborhood to Russia, cannot feel safe without being members of the NATO
2: alliance. I don't think this conflict has a negotiable solution yet. If you want peace in Ukraine tomorrow, you need to arm Ukraine today. And to be honest, this war is too big for Putin and Russia to fail, so they will go the full mile. And for Ukraine, there's no way in which Zelensky and his people are going to give up, and they shouldn't. So in that sense, I am quite helpless as an observer or to wannabe peace mediator. I,
0: I just don't see a solution. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Later in the show, we will hear from the foreign ministers of Finland and Norway and a former Finnish prime minister. But first, for the view from Sweden, I'm joined now by Tobias Bilstrom, Sweden's minister for foreign affairs. Minister, first of all, the big question, do you have any doubts at all that Sweden's accession to NATO will be complete by that upcoming summit in Vilnius in July?
1: No, I do not. I believe that we are well on the path towards NATO membership together with Finland. And come Vilnius, we will both be members within the NATO family.
0: Is that confidence rooted in the assumption that Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, is basically just milking this until Turkey's elections, which are due in May or June?
1: From our point of view, it is quite clear that we have fulfilled all the commitments that we made within the memorandum that was signed between Sweden, Finland and Turkey at the summit in Madrid last year. And having done that, it is time for the Turkish parliament to start the ratification process. I would also like to say, in addition to it, that we also believe that it is the right and proper thing to do, as we already have 28 of the already 30 member states of NATO having ratified Sweden and Finland's NATO applications.
0: I know that this is something Turkey is being difficult about, not Sweden, but as you understand it, what still are the sticking points?
1: Well, I think that this has mostly boiled down to a domestic debate in Turkey related to the ongoing election campaign, as you just preferred to. And this is really not something which Sweden can, you know, interfere with or have any kind of influence over. It's just something which we have to live through. But once this election campaign is over, we do believe that there won't be any more obstacles until the summit in Vilnius. There will be a ratification done with Sweden and Finland's NATO applications by the Turkish parliament.
0: Finland is contemplating the prospect of joining NATO without Sweden if Turkey continues to obstruct this. Would this be a big problem for you? I have
1: a very close relationship with my colleague in Finland, Foreign Minister Mr. Pekka Haavisto. Uh, we are in very regular communications on the, both NATO and other political items as well on the agenda. And for Swedish point of view, it is clear that this is not really something which is up to Finland. This is something which has to do with the Turkish Parliament. It has already been clear since Madrid and onwards so that these are is owned by sovereign states. It is a Swedish decision to join NATO, it is a Finnish decision to join NATO, and it is a process within the Turkish parliament to ratify our application. So there isn't really much to say about this. We can't influence it. But of course, in the short term, it doesn't mean so much if Finland were to be ratified prior to Sweden. In the long run, though, if there were to be a long period of time after Finland having been let in as a NATO member, that would cause some problems to both the Swedish and Finnish defense cooperation, which is already existing, but also of course to NATO planning, which takes into account the fact that Sweden and Finland are supposed to be members of NATO in a context where NATO is basing the deployment of military forces, the decisions about where you put your capacities, etc. And if not Sweden and Finland are members, that would pose some problems.
0: I did want to ask a broader question about Sweden's application to join NATO. It's a little less than a year since Sweden decided to do that. And I can remember at the time speaking to Sweden's ambassador here in the UK who said that, yes, a year previously she would never have imagined that Sweden would be doing such a thing. From your point of view, does it feel like a big shift in Sweden's national mindset? This is an end to hundreds of years of fairly determined neutrality.
1: This is very, very much a fundamental change. It is the largest shift in Swedish security policy for 200 years, ever since the beginning of the 19th century. And it ends a period of non-alignment, not neutrality as such, but non-alignment towards military alliances. But it is also a token of how serious the situation is following the Russian illegal aggression on Ukraine and the full-scale invasion. It shows that smaller countries like Sweden, like Finland, like the Baltic states, who all have a very close neighborhood to Russia, cannot feel safe without being members of the NATO alliance. We know after the invasion of Ukraine exactly what Russia is capable of doing. We know that they are quite willing to use military means in order to achieve political goals. There is nothing to stop them from using both extensive brutality, everything we have seen within Ukraine goes to prove this. And this was what caused Sweden to make this very, very fundamental decision to join NATO.
0: Do you think in retrospect, and I'm, I'm not holding you accountable for the last 200 years of Swedish neutrality, that, it, <laughs> but that in retrospect, it might have been somewhat naive, even self indulgent. I mean, monstrous though Russia's behavior in Ukraine has been in the last year, it is not new for Russia to attack the countries towards its east. It's done this fairly regularly since the end of World War Two.
1: Well, yes, thank you for not holding me accountable for everything within those 200 years, because many, many aspects of European history and many things have changed over these 200 years. But you're quite right. Following the Second World War, there could have been many decisions taken by Swedish government, which could have pointed in a different direction. However, there is always history to take into account. Having been neutral during the First World War and also during the Second World War, having not been occupied, you know, I'm not going to complain too much about the decisions taken by politicians in those days. But I have to say that in the last, well, 10 or 20 years, especially after the events of 2008, and with the Russian invasion in Georgia, I think we should have reached the conclusion at an earlier stage in Sweden that time was up, that there was no possibility of being non-aligned. And from a personal point of view, I believe that the neutrality as such, not the non-alignment, but the neutrality, that ended in 1995 when we became members of the European Union. So from that point of view, it has been quite an extensive period of time where we could have made these considerations and reached different decisions than what we actually did.
0: Sweden has obviously been entirely unequivocal in its attitude to Ukraine. And I did want to ask about your most recent military package, which I believe was the 11th. It includes 10 Leopard tanks and the Hawk anti-aircraft systems. But has there been any thought Especially given the wrangle going on about whether or not to equip Ukraine with Western fighter jets of supplying Ukraine with the Swedish built Gripen, which, as I understand it, is an extremely versatile, relatively low maintenance fighter jet, which might suit Ukraine's present requirements quite well.
1: Yeah, thank you for the advertisement. Yes, it is an excellent fighter plane in in many aspects. But I would like to reiterate what my Prime Minister have already said, namely that we do not rule out anything with regards to support to Ukraine. At the moment, this is not being contemplated, but as I said, you know, We are in for a long period of war. Many things might happen during this period which lies ahead. And in my opinion, as Foreign Minister of Sweden, the vital thing is to see to it that Ukraine wins militarily in the battlefield. This is the only thing that matters. It is the only thing that is going to stop Russia from continuing its brutal onslaughts. And there is no way around a military defeat because it's the only thing which is going to change
0: the political course of Russia. Tobias Bilstrom, thank you for joining us. That was Sweden's Minister for Foreign Affairs. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. As Turkey has kicked Sweden's NATO application further and further into the weeds, there has been increasing speculation that Finland could join separately. At the recent Munich security conference, I sat down with Pekka Havisto, Finland's minister for foreign affairs. I began by asking the minister whether he thinks it's a possibility that Finland could apply for NATO membership without Sweden.
3: Well, first of all, we were very happy that we could a little bit trigger the Swedish debate last spring on the NATO membership. And when you look at the defense in Nordic countries, and if you take Sweden out from the map and you try to plan some kind of common defense, not only for Nordic countries, but even to support Baltic states, you know that you need Sweden, you need the territory, but you need also the military capabilities. They are technically very advanced country on military aspects. Now what has happened in this three-partite work between Turkey, Finland, and Sweden since last summer, NATO-Madrid summit. We have had a good meetings in Stockholm, in Helsinki. We have discussed the 3 cooperation. And then in the beginning of this year, actually, Turkey pushed the brakes because of this some demonstrations in Sweden and so forth. So the three-partite work was freezed. And that was our problem also because there was no channel to continue the communication with Turkey. We had relied on this tripartite work. And now we are in a situation that both countries had a bilateral channels to Turkey on this issue. And of course, we have been saying that it's up to the Turkey now to decide how and when it will ratify us. But our hope is that both Finland and Sweden will be members before the Vilnius summit in the summer.
0: The demonstration you refer to, which was by that rather tiresome Danish politician Rasmus Paludan, though he is also a Swedish citizen, you suggested that Russia may have had some sort of hand in encouraging his burning a Koran outside the Turkish embassy in Sweden. You, you seem to suggest that you thought Russia might have had some hand in that?
3: Well, some of the rumors around him, of course, hinted that there might be at least supporters that are following the Russian narrative or Russian agenda. I don't know if this was the case, but of course, you see now a very easy way to provoke situation by organizing some of these demonstrations and so forth. It wouldn't be so difficult. And this just shows how sensitive the security situation is, that single provocations can influence European security.
0: But have you been able to have, during the last few months, direct conversations about this with your counterparts in Sweden and Turkey?
3: Well, definitely. I have been just two days ago calling to my good friend Mevlut Savusoglu in, in Ankara. Of course, Finland is now supporting the victims of this terrible earthquake and we have been sending our rescue teams. We are supporting through European Union bilaterally and also through NATO. Now the rescue work, which is a little bit paradox, but Mevlut thanked Finland for this support and also mentioned that, of course, the timetable now in Ankara is very mixed because of this earthquake situation. And we are dealing with my Swedish colleague Tobias Bilstrom almost daily. So we inform what's happening in Finland, host a parliamentary debate ongoing and also our parliamentary committee, Foreign Affairs Committee, just visited Stockholm. So we have a very good coordination with Sweden.
0: Is also there an aspect of both Finland and Sweden and indeed everybody else waiting out Turkey's electoral calendar. There is, of course, an election in Turkey in May. It has been, I think, quite plausibly speculated that Erdogan is putting on something of a performance for domestic consumption. So is the idea that either he wins and then it served its purpose, or he loses and you get to deal with somebody more reasonable?
3: Well, actually, we don't speculate about the Turkish elections or who will win the elections and who will lose and so forth. We think that this is a question of Turkey as a nation, whoever is the, in, in government, whoever is the president. Of course, they are members of NATO. They are taking part of the common defense of NATO. And definitely we think that both Finland and Sweden, we are adding to the security of the whole military alliance. And when we look actually the happenings in our territory, for example, the explosion of the Nord Stream pipeline and even Ukraine is not geographically so, so far from us, we think that this is a serious security situation in Europe. And therefore, the sooner we are members of NATO, the better also for the whole alliance. We are not only asking our own security. We are, for example, asking how systematically we could support Ukraine without risks then to be ourselves somehow a target. Finland has just delivered a package, the 12th military package to Ukraine worth of 400 million euros and we are looking for the 13th military package. So when we are doing that, of course, it would be much more safe that we would be part of the military alliance.
0: When you think about Finland's security position now in this sort of waiting room outside NATO, do you feel at all as a country or do you feel like the country is in any way vulnerable? Or are you that close that a, an Article 5 adjacent status is sort of assumed on, on both sides?
3: Well, of course, we have more than 1,300 kilometer common border with Russia, and we are saying to NATO that we want to bring a peaceful border. But of course, when we are living vulnerable days in the European security, we were very happy that security assurances were given to us when we decided to apply NATO membership, first by US, UK and key. NATO countries and key European Union countries, and actually we were also quite happy that some of the European countries were reacting, why do you even ask? We have the Article 42.7 at place, and we said, well, we and France probably have been those countries who have been advocating the 42.7, but it's very nice that you now (laughs) remind us about that. But actually, when our people are asking this question also, are we safe? I'm saying always that look, look what we are doing together as European Union through our peace facility towards Ukraine, and Ukraine is not a member of European Union, how much more would we do when a European Union member is attacked? And I think this is quite convincing what the European Union has been doing.
0: Notwithstanding Finland's application to NATO, and I think we can assume that it will happen at some point, do you think Finland still does, though, think differently about Russia? to the rest of Europe. That's always been the thing since the end of World War II, Finland had a very different approach to managing its relations with Russia. Is Finland joining NATO an admission that that's just not going to work anymore?
3: But well, I think when looking a little bit back, I'm actually referring to some of the Ukrainian French who asked that, uh, how can you negotiate with the party that towards you have a zero trust? And I said, well, that's a good question. But when we look at the Second World War and what happened after the Second World War, when we were negotiating with Soviet Union as a neighbor, part of our military was also hiding arms. And they were hiding arms because they were thinking that whatever we negotiate will not be realistic because the enemy can come over the border. And I think the Finnish defense policy has always been based, of course, on the fact that we have a common border with Russia, and we are living, of course, with the neighbor who can be a little bit unpredictable. And when we look 100 years back, Russian, you know, the chart time to Lenin, Stalin, Khrushchev, Brezhnev, Gorbachev, a lot of turns has happened in the Russian foreign policy and Russian influence to Europe. And I think our thinking has always been we have to be ready for all kinds of changes in our neighborhood.
0: That was Finland's Minister for Foreign Affairs, Pekka Havisto. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. Norway, unlike its neighbours Sweden and Finland, is not merely a member of NATO, but was a founding member of NATO back in 1949 and the only one of the original 12 to have a land border with the Soviet Union. Also, at the Munich Security Conference, I spoke to Anneken Wittfeldt, Norway's Minister for Foreign Affairs. I began by asking the minister whether she perceives the potential threat of Russia to Norway as different to the threat Russia poses to Europe generally.
4: Well, Russia has their largest nuclear arsenal, only 100 kilometers away from the Norwegian border, and their conventional forces have been moved to Ukraine. So we need to be really careful to avoid unintended consequences, and they still have their capacities in the air and at sea, and we have to be prepared for that. So we will increase our military presence in our own waters, and this will be even strengthened when Finland and Sweden Will be joining NATO.
0: Does that represent, or will it involve, a major adjustment to how Norway operates within NATO? Because just looking at the geography, it seems likely that Norway would become the obvious conduit for supplying, reinforcing Sweden and Finland. So is there an element of this increasing Norway's load as well as sharing it within NATO?
4: Yeah, that would be very much for the better for Norway. We had this discussion, I didn't take part in this discussion those days, but in nineteen forty eight Norway wanted Sweden to be member of NATO because that will increase our security. But that wasn't possible then. And due to geography, they will be closer to us in difficult situation and especially in the Air Force they have a lot of capabilities that added to the Norwegian will increase the security in our region.
0: Do you think there is still a thing, though, and this is something that has struck us while we've been making this program over the last year, that attitudes towards Russia seem to get harder the closer you get to Russia, going eastwards especially, and for understandable reasons. And I think it does often get somewhat forgotten that Norway does share that border with Russia. And Do you think that Norway sees Russia akin to the way that the Baltic states and Eastern Europe have always seen it?
4: I think we look upon Russia more and more similar, I think, especially after the war broke out. But the fact that Norwegian security are based on two principles, deterrence and reassurance will still be maintained. Because of this nuclear capability very close to the Norwegian border, we need to uh, avoid unintended consequences. And therefore, this reassurance part will still be important for a country like Norway.
0: I wanted to ask specifically about Arctic security, which is obviously a perennial concern of Norway's. You you take over the chair of the Arctic Council in May. But within that framework, at least, is there any contact with Russia at all? Or can you imagine there being any contact with Russia at all, as long as this continues in Ukraine?
4: There is no political contact right now. When I was appointed as foreign minister, I met with my colleague Lavrov after only 10 days. But there has been no political contact after the war broke out. And this is not possible under the umbrella of the Arctic Council either. But there are some limited contact because we have a border to Russia on uh, search and rescue, fishery management, and uh, also nuclear safety. And that will be continued. Under the umbrella of the Arctic Council, we have and need some orderly transition so we can take over the chairmanship later on.
0: With the avoiding unintended consequences, especially, is the risk of those accelerated by that lack of political contact you were discussing? I understand the reasons why nobody really wants to speak to Russia directly or overtly at the moment, but can you imagine circumstances in which that might change?
4: You know, We conducted the largest military exercise in NATO last year. 30,000 soldiers took part in that. And we invited Russia as an observer, but they refused to come. So I think it's very important that we act predictably and we will continue to do so. They know who we are and that NATO has never constituted a threat towards Russia. We still have a direct line between the Norwegian military headquarter and the headquarter of the Northern Fleet. And this is still working.
0: There has been obviously a lot of concern over the last year, especially as Europe headed into the most recent winter, about whether that unity and cohesion would hold together and that people's resolve would stand the test of that winter combined with a lack of Russian gas. But the impression I'm getting, at least, from talking to people this weekend is that the resolve actually seems to be hardening, if anything else, against Russia. Is that your impression as well?
4: Yeah. When I visited Kiev in May, I was pretty concerned about if, whether or not, the solidarity with Ukraine would be maintained. But quite the opposite happened. So when I was at Kiev again in November... We've seen that because of the braveness of the Ukrainian people and the brutality we've seen from Russia, we have maintained the solidarity within Europe. So Norway this week presented a package in order to help Ukraine over years. This will be a five-year package of solidarity. 7 billion euro will provide it for assisting Ukraine over time. So the package next year will be based on 50% support for military equipment and the rest will be humanitarian assistance and also budgetary assistance so they can buy gas and other kind of equipment and also an extraordinary package to mitigate the food insecurity that very many countries in the global south now are facing.
0: Also then going back to that commitment you were talking about that Norway is making lasting for the next five years, which I think puts a lot of this in perspective. You've managed to figure out how not to make this an election issue. How difficult was it to get almost everybody behind this?
4: I think that was very easy, actually, uh, because we think that this is also part of the Norwegian security to support Ukraine. And we have to stay committed over Yes. So Norway provides an unprecedented package of support that will help Ukraine over five years, 7 billion euros. And the fact that 95% of the MPs in the Norwegian Parliament have supported this package, really has committed the entire political landscape to stand up for solidarity with Ukraine for years.
0: And it completely removes any possibility of that becoming an election issue.
4: We will stay by our commitments. But of course, there are discussions about what kind of support we should provide for Ukraine. But there is very, very strong support. Because we have a border to Russia, we think that this is also in our self-interest.
0: That was Norway's Minister for Foreign Affairs, Anakin Fitfeld, speaking to us in Munich. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. Thank <laughs> Finally, on today's show, Russia's attack on Ukraine last year was not the beginning of Finland's discussion about NATO membership. There were those in Finnish politics who had been advocating applying for some time. One was Alexander Stubb, who served as Finland's Prime Minister from 2014 to 2015, having previously held Cabinet posts including Minister of Foreign Affairs. We spoke at the recent Munich Security Conference. I began by asking whether he felt vindicated when Finland applied to join NATO.
2: Well, yes and no. I always felt that it was the organisation that we belonged to as a Western democracy, but only 20% of the Finnish population shared my view. And you can't sort of force these things, not even as a foreign minister, finance minister or prime minister. But when Putin attacked Ukraine, I think the speed at which the Finnish public basically changed tack. We had an opinion poll on the 23rd, 24th and 25th of February 2022, and that one was 50 in favor, 20 against. And that was completely opposite that we'd had a few weeks before. So I'm kind of, yeah, I feel vindicated, but at the same time I'm pretty proud of the Finnish public who were able to change the line so quickly.
0: Were you surprised by that sudden shift in mood?
2: Not really. I mean, when there's a linchpin in history, Finns have a tendency to react quite fast. and We are very pragmatic. I mean, I think the Swedes and the Germans are a bit more ideological on their foreign (laughs) policy, but we're not basically because of our 1,340-kilometer border with Russia. We're quite
0: realistic. You think being ideological about it is not a luxury you have? No, we don't. We
2: can't afford that. If we were ideological, we wouldn't have 900,000 men and women in reserves or 280,000 that can be mobilized at wartime. We don't have those because we want to protect ourselves from Stockholm, right? So, (laughs) So we don't have that luxury. But I guess the bottom line is that during the linchpins in our history in 1809, when we became part of Russia, we maximized our autonomy in 1917. We declared independence in the middle of the Bolshevik Revolution in 1944. We accepted reluctantly an uncomfortable peace with Stalin and lost 10% of our land. And then 1989, 1991, we ended up immediately applying for EU membership. And this is kind of a sequence, a long sequence of big decisions when the time is right.
0: And do you think, though, that maybe the rest of Europe needs to start thinking about Russia more like Finland always has with that pragmatic approach rather than that ideological approach because obviously you're right in that Finland has that long direct border but that's a border between Russia and Europe. Yeah I
2: mean the way in which I'd like to see it is that we probably need to have a little bit of idealism and a little bit of realism. So the idealism especially post-Cold War, was that, okay, let's trade with Russia, you know, let's do the energy trade and let's try to bring them in. And I think it was the right decision. I mean, it's a very European way of thinking, right? But then the realism was, okay, let's keep our armed forces. But right now, I think it's all about basically armed forces. And it's also about using the instruments of power and war, actually, that we have in the West. Currency, sanctions, technology energy, everything can be weaponized. I think we're doing the right thing. Start with the base case that Russia will be isolated from Europe for the foreseeable future. That's what we need to think. That's realism right now.
0: Did you ever have any unease about that idea of trying to incorporate Russia? Because you were prime minister or foreign minister at a couple of fairly crucial junctures, getting us to where we are now, the invasion of Georgia in 2008, uh, the seizure of Crimea in 2014. You spoke last year, I think, of a European naivety and not listening enough to countries like Poland and the Baltics
2: yeah I think you know the Baltics and Poland were right, and I actually did a YouTube series and lecture where I openly admitted four mistakes that I did with Russia. One was calling for visa liberalization. Well, it didn't materialize. Two was not to stop Nord Stream. Well, it (laughs) blown up. And three was not to block Rosatom, a nuclear reactor from Russia that we had to take on board in 2014, 2015, when I was PM. And finally, that I didn't push ourselves into NATO harder. But I always say that, you know, there's no use crying over spilt milk. I think the basic philosophy was the right one to try to integrate and incorporate Russia, but eventually now we know that it was an impossible task and we have to live with the realities and the reality for us has been to join NATO and for the rest of Europe to block Russia out.
0: It's a question I've put to a few current and former office holders of countries which really do have It isn't a shared border with Russia, it is a border with Russia. Because it's obviously an irreducible fact of life that Russia will always be Finland's neighbour. How do you see the future of that relationship? Do you ever see a time at which you're as relaxed about Finland's border with Russia as you are about Finland's border with Sweden?
2: (laughs) The direct answer to that is no. (laughs) (laughs) But I I do think we have to probably think of it as a pendulum of history, and I don't want to over-rationalise the past. But during the time that we were an autonomous part of Russia, we were able to cope and live with Russia. When we became independent, same thing. But then, of course, they attacked us in World War II, and we fought the Winter War and the War of Continuation. It was bad times. Then it was again complicated but manageable. So it just goes back and forth. But what's my vision now? Well, I think Russia will be isolated for a generation. And I stress, isolated from the West, it's not going to be isolated from the rest, as we can see. You know, we've seen no sanctions whatsoever coming from Africa, Latin America, and limited ones coming from Asia. But we live with the reality of that border. And the example that I give, I heard a lot of horror stories from my grandparents and parents about World War II and the Winter War. And we had an inbuilt attitude against Russia and Russians even during the Cold War. Take that times 100 and you'll know what the Ukrainians will be feeling for this century. So I do think this is a generational issue, I'm afraid.
0: And a couple of questions about your work with the Marty Artisari Peace Foundation. Are you thinking in terms of... How this ends and what a potential settlement might look like?
2: Yeah, I mean, so for those of you who don't know, I happen to be the chairman of the board of Martti Atisar's Peace Foundation. Of course, we do a lot of peace mediation. Marty, in his great days, you know, he did Namibia, he did Aceh, he did Kosovo, he did part of Northern Ireland. So, of course, we are involved in about 30 active conflicts around the world. And of course, we have good contacts also in, in Ukraine and in Moscow as well. And I think the, our kind of organizations are the only ones who can act and discuss right now. You know, sort of traditional diplomacy is, is off the cards. Having said this, it might sound a little bit harsh, especially in my position for a peace mediation organization, but I don't think this conflict has a negotiable solution yet. The saying goes, if you want peace in Ukraine tomorrow, you need to arm Ukraine today. And that's just a reality because the differences are so big between Russia and Ukraine. And to be honest, this war is too big for Putin and Russia to fail, so they will go the full mile. And for Ukraine, there's no way in which Zelensky and his people are going to give up, and they shouldn't. So, in that sense, I am quite helpless as an observer or want to be peace mediator. I, I just don't see a solution.
0: And just finally, we were talking earlier about the lessons that should have perhaps been absorbed from Poland and the Baltic states and the, the attitude they had taken to Russia did you ever think especially when you were prime minister or foreign minister that it might be helpful if more of the rest of europe took a lead from finland's approach to national defence thinking about that scheme of conscription and that large reserve military that you maintain probably
2: yes but i also understand those countries who didn't choose the line that we took and i think our You know, line was dictated by two things. One was, of course, the long border with Russia. But the second one was that it wasn't possible for us to join NATO in the early 1990s. There wasn't public support for that. And then we understood that for a rainy day, we need to have these reserves. We have over 60 F-18 Hornets. We just bought 64 F-35s. We have one of the most sophisticated missile defense and, to be honest, attack systems which we don't talk about, in the world. And as I said earlier, those were all for a rainy day, and that rainy day came. That's why I feel very secure. I feel that we are in a good place as a country, because we are going to be a value-added, a security provider to NATO. At the same time, we will enjoy Article 5 and everything that it has. So it's a win-win situation.
0: And on enjoying Article 5, if President Erdogan of Turkey continues to be difficult about it in the event that he is re-elected in May. Should Finland do this alone?
2: Well, I mean, I took a decision when I left politics in 2016, 2017, not to give advice to the people who are in office right now. It's a tough enough job not to have an ex-PM or foreign (laughs) minister give them any advice. But the message that I give to Sweden, because I'm a Swedish speaker, is to say, calm down, we are going to be full members, both of us, at the summit in Vilnius in July. and Sweden was neutral for 200 years. Just wait a couple of months and you'll <laughs> be absolutely fine. Same thing goes for Finland. Our security situation is stable and sound. We'll be full members by July. Let's not get into this cat and mouse game. And in any case, for tragic reasons, I think President Erdogan has his hands full right now in the aftermath of the earthquake. So let's not
0: make hasty moves. That was the former Prime Minister of Finland, Alexander Stubb. Thank <laughs> you. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week. And look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. Next week's episode is another all-star production featuring the President of Slovenia, the Prime Minister of Kosovo, the Prime Minister of Lithuania, a former President of Estonia, and the former Deputy Prime Minister of Latvia. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.